All right, y'all. Welcome to the Unfazed, Unedited Podcast, where we provide commentary on complicated topics in an uncomplicated format. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, hers pronouns, and I'm here with Dr. Ingerfield. How are you doing this week? I am doing good, better than last week. Still a bit congested, but, you know, hanging in there, hanging in there. Um, my pronouns are she, hers, and we are excited to be with you this week. We have some good things to chat about, so looking forward to diving in. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. And yeah, the, the ickies take a while to get rid of. Um, Kendrick is taking like 10 days to finally feel like himself again. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you're feeling better. But look, I hear that we have some fantastic topics on deck today. And mm -hmm. uh, the first one starts with the MLK arson, right? Like how ridiculous yeah. is that? Yeah. Phase one, we're jumping in feet first, head first. So you had sent me a note when this was happening and I was alarmed, right? I have visited MLK's home uh, in Atlanta and you have too. And so before any of the information emerged, <laughs> we were you know, throwing our hands up and, and pretty upset about it. And we made, we both made some assumptions that ended up not being the case. That's what we want to talk about. But um, so it transpires for folks who are not aware that uh, a woman named Lanisha Centrice Henderson was arrested, a military veteran, I believe, African-American woman potentially with mental illness, although that is not confirmed. And uh, she has been arrested and she's being held um, right now is as I understand it, but the, you know, there's a video, um, of the event, which I haven't watched in full, but you have, I believe Shauna. And, um, it's interesting, some interesting dynamics played out in that video, right? So we thought we would talk about that and then maybe talk about our own assumptions as we kind of started to understand the issue. Yeah. Yeah. I happened to watch the video before I read any of the details and I immediately identified it as MLK's house. It's a, a pretty distinct looking house, um, especially if you've already been there, you can kind of pick it out. Um, and so I saw this video of a person in all black, obviously with a red can, a red gas can. If you ran out of gas, you would take the gas can and, you know, use it to put gas in your car. So that's clearly identifiable. And she's uh, kind of, you know, throwing this gas around on the bushes around the home. And then the video goes into, you hear the voices around her, um, a couple of off-duty New York police officers um, apprehend this person until police could come, uh, park service folks could come. And what was interesting about it was that, I have to be honest with myself, I probably would have been the person with the camera across the street, okay, because my first thought would be that I don't know if this person has a weapon or not. I, I don't know what's going on here, but that would right. have been my first inclination. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, these are off-duty police officers, so clearly they may treat this a little differently. Um, and then what I also observed in the video was that I could hear, um, I could see a, a gentleman who was holding the woman down to the ground, another person leaning over speaking. Um, I couldn't see their face, but I could hear the voice. 
And they were really speaking to this person with a lot of kindness. Um, you know, are you comfortable? We just need to keep you here to keep you safe and keep other people safe until um, the authorities come. You know, they were really treating this person with kindness that I have not seen black bodies being treated in the same right. way, especially when right. it's been men. Um, so the George Floyds of the world and, you know, Freddie Gray's of the world for those of us that are here in the DMV area near Baltimore. And so after watching that video, first, I have to go back and say, let's identify Shauna's own bias. When I heard that the attempted arson had occurred, I did not think a black person and I certainly did not think a black woman. When I saw the video, Lisa, shock and awe. Okay, shock and awe when yep. I saw the video. Yep. yep, I had the same assumption. <laughs> and yep. I guess we're yeah. sharing this with you all because, you know, even though we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we educate ourselves, we read, we watch, we think, we analyze, right? We still have implicit bias. Um, and and so we definitely were were surprised, shall we say. Because we don't often see um, African American women women vandalizing, right, or being in in that in that role, and so, and yeah. given that it's MLK's house, I for sure thought it was going to be a white person, given our climate that we're in, um, and that it was like an act of violence against an important historical figure, both for African-Americans in this country, but for this country broadly, right? So, you know, sure, that's, there's a little, there's some bias creeping in there for me. So it was a little bit of a jarring yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. wake up when I saw that that wasn't the case. But I think it's interesting how you describe the kindness of the officers. Cause I mm. do wonder if there's some gender at play there, right? Like assumptions yeah. around threat between yeah. men and women. I don't know if yeah. that is something you yeah. thought of related to that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I hear you entirely. And, you know, like I said, I I would have been fearful not knowing if someone would have a weapon or if the person had a weapon. Um, and also, too, I wonder, it's a little bit difficult to tell based on the angles of the video, but I even wonder based on size, like, was this a, uh, a shorter, smaller framed woman? And how would that play? Um, if it were a taller, larger person, um, gendered or non-gendered, you know, even without thinking about gender, size matters. Um, and especially when we think about threat. And so, you know, all of that was playing for me, which I thought was so interesting. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is a historical landmark. This is the birthplace of pivotal voice in this country. We are not to, through, and beyond race issues, no matter what anybody says about being a post-Obama era for anybody, for anything. And so, you know, for me, I think I had some major assumptions about race, definitely gender emerged, and then also just flat out safety. You know, the safety, like I wonder, um, I'm grateful that people noticed and responded accordingly, but what if it wasn't some off-duty police officers? And what if, you know, this person had an opportunity to get to that lighter that was on the ground and, you know, it would have gone up in flames pretty quickly. Um, and so I brought a bunch of assumptions to this. And I'm interested to see what happens now because uh, Lanisha is being held without bond right now. 
Again, I'm also thinking about race when it comes to that, being held without bond. What does that mean? Um, if this person has mental health challenges, what does that mean being held? Is this person in uh, alone in solitary confinement or are they receiving um, some help or some services? I've got questions. I've, I've got lots of questions and all of them hang upon uh, a hook of various identities that are crashing into one another all at the same time. Um, so yeah, I'm concerned. I'm very concerned about this. Yeah, I do wonder if the response from the off-duty police officers and, and bystanders around would have been different if the person had been a man um, of any racial mm -hmm. identity, but particularly an African-American man. I think I think it might have gone down differently. Um, the being held without bond is really interesting to me because, yeah. you know, one of the big critiques of the criminal legal system is that it's largely low-income people that are held in jail because they are not able to pay bond, right? Or they end up having family members getting into extreme debt with bail bondsmen. Um, but in this case, but there was no bond even offered, right? So that that usually only happens like with very, um, well, in my experience, I should say, I've only seen that happen with pretty severe violent cases or where there is a threat that the person will leave the state or the country right so this individual was potentially going to burn down this house I, I, it just felt that feels extreme maybe maybe yeah. she has nowhere to go right like i mean there's a lot that we don't know there um but still um i am going to be curious about how this is handled based on her identities, if she is indeed a military veteran, if she does indeed have mental illness, because we know that mental illness gets thrown out left, right, and center when the perpetrator of any kind of violence is white, mm -hmm. right? That's always one of the first things that happens. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I will be curious to see, even though this is not a mass shooting, right? Or a quote unquote violent crime because no mm -hmm. one was harmed. I mean, I actually don't know whether anyone was in the home at the time. Yeah, oh, no, you exactly. said it was closed, right? It was closed for renovations. Yeah, closed for yeah. renovations. Uh, the, it's it's owned by the National Park Service, um, but you know it's been closed since November because they're about to undergo renovations, and so you know it's not supposed to open until 2025 again. So they have a good bit of work to do. But you know, I wonder too because there was one report that I read that this person was also being held without bond because of an unstable place of residence for them as well. So mm. that may be yet another consideration. I'm not sure how we know that exactly, but you know, if uh if Lanisha Henderson told the judge, you know, I have nowhere to go anyway, you know, how does that play into it as well, which then gets us into another identity when it comes to thinking about houselessness and, you know, stable stable home environment that may not have been the case. So I think this is really, um, again, a crash of these different identities that we usually yeah. don't get to peel back and think through um, yeah. in a situation. And our, our assumptions got completely obliterated, Lisa, um, when we think about this. So I'm gonna keep following the story to see how it plays out. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm just so thankful that nobody was harmed. Um, you know, they had a cleanup of all this gas and so forth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I hope that they're taking this as an opportunity because they're doing the renovation anyway. What does this mean for security efforts moving right. forward? Right. When it comes to hatred and violence, you know, especially as the country um, remains and continues to be divided, especially approaching another U.S. presidential right. election, yep. what yep. does it mean for the security of lots of different 
historical landmarks such as this and how we need to ramp that up um, without the presumption that people are going to honor and reverence places like this, because not everyone will. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, so good food for thought. I think it's something to watch. It was a good check on our assumptions. You know, we are not infallible. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Part of it is owning it um, and naming it and then figuring out where it comes from. From. I do just want to say one thing before we shift into the next phase is that an assumption, you know, my assumption that it was probably a white man is rooted in experience. Um, and so I think that's the same as racism, right? Racism is a system. It's not an individual um, assessment. So I just want to throw that in before we shift to phase two. Absolutely. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, I think what's interesting about phase two <laughs> is that yet again, we're getting into more identities that we usually don't talk about as often. Um, we usually talk about race. We pretty much talk about gender um, a good bit. But I also sent Lisa a video, another video, <laughs> which I thought was really important for us to discuss. So a traffic reporter for Global News in Canada, her name was Leslie Horton. I am so thrilled with the way Leslie addressed a harasser, okay? And what, Lisa, what Leslie did was, um, and I'm gonna quote everything she said. She said, quote, I'm just gonna respond to an email that I got saying, the email she received saying, congratulations on your pregnancy. Uh, Adding the email also read, if you're going to wear old bus driver pants, then you have to expect emails like this. And the email was just hateful as hell. I mean, it was just really hateful. Um, but then <laughs> Leslie addressing the email says, quote, so thanks for that. Um, no, I'm not pregnant. I actually lost my uterus to cancer last year. And um, this is what women of my age look like. And when I saw the video, I'm thinking, so, okay, Lisa, last podcast, you said I, I gave a good bit of grace to Jamiroquai. This week, I'm giving zero, zilch, nada, no grace to nobody on this one, okay? None whatsoever. I was so, I mean, I was fuming uh, when I heard the email being read. And that was before her response. The response was interesting to me um, because I'm thinking to myself, it's already hateful. And now, even though it's her truth uh, that she lost her uterus to cancer the year before, shaming someone to do the right thing, even though the shame is well warranted, it should not be the reason why people backtrack and do the right thing. You see right. what I mean? Like, I, I know right. I'm sounding a little con convoluted here, but it was hateful on its own right without someone having an illness, without any yeah. of the background stories. I, I was hot. I was, I'm still hot, as y'all can tell. I'm, I'm steaming um, about <laughs> that email. And she handled it with much uh -huh. more grace than I would have because I would have completely read them for filth in that uh, response. But hey, here we are. I'm sure she, she got advise not to do that on live tv but um she yeah. um she basically said f you without saying it right in her response which i really liked but i agree with you 
that I mean it just it just made it worse that she had lost her uterus right like but even without that the critique of the way that she looked you know um the pants that she was wearing the size of her stomach whatever right like it's just that kind of shit men generally don't get feedback on like per like film stars personalities it's not that it doesn't exist i'm sure it does but the degree to which it exists is minuscule as compared to people who identify as women right um and trans people too and non-binary people i imagine fall into that too into hate mail that comes up targeting the way they look um their gender expression whether or not they're aging and it's it does call into it just right it raises again that notion that women don't get to age and maintain respect, but men do, right? Men get gray hair or salt and pepper hair or whatever, and they're all like wise and, you know, attractive, yeah. right? But women. Yeah, the gray fox, the gray fox. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't happen to women they're washed up right they're too wrinkly their stomach's too big right whatever whatever and so this was just an example another example of this and yeah it made my blood boil i was so mad when you said that to me and i've noticed it's been like on big networks here in the us like abc cbs they've even played it too so it's pretty much taken off um but i don't know do you think the person who wrote that email feels shame like uh, well, you know, part of me, um, and, and you know, Lisa, I, I'm a person of faith. I do believe in uh, my spiritual perspective and all of that. And I do think that they're just flat out some people that are demonic. They just are. They just are not kind. They are not um, ones that bring light into the world. They're just people that are flat out mean. And for me, the the thing I thought about initially was, Think about how much energy it takes, energy and effort it takes to stop what you're doing in your day. Find a website or an email and send a hateful email. It's one thing thinking it. It's one thing believing it. It's another thing going out of your way to make sure the message gets to the person, right? That is heinous. That is violent. Um, and so for people that, you know, kind of like when, we were kids. Many of us learn, you know, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will, no, words do matter. They do matter and they do hurt. And people I know who are grown adults that still function in ways that are relevant to things they were told as young people and as children. And so when I hear that, I don't have any empathy at all. Like even when, you know, I think about people, you know, the saying hurt people hurt people. I wonder if this person is hurt, but part of me really doesn't give a shit because what that tells me is that either you've been hurt so badly that you find the need to hurt other people or you have not been a product of your environment to say, I know what it feels like to be hurt, so I'm not going to do that to other people. So either way is grimy. I think it's grimy. Um, you know, at the end, uh, she said, so, you know, if my body, my pants, whatever, if it's offensive to you, that's unfortunate. Think about the emails you send. Part of me feels like that's so much grace because this person thought about, I mean, they stopped what they were doing, went to a computer, composed their thoughts in an email, yeah. hit the send yeah. button. And then to to their, hopefully to, to their surprise, 
they may have assumed that this was going to hurt someone and they would not respond, that they would not defend themselves, that they would not interrupt bad behavior. And so as much as my words would have been much more piercing, I'm grateful that she addressed it at all, because now I'm thinking about all the emails that go unaddressed. Oh, for sure. She probably receives tons of emails like, right. And just, there's no way the intention of that email wasn't to cause pain in some way. I mean, it's just right. clearly hurtful, right? Right. Um, right. Objectively hurtful. Um, right. So right. you, you've lost your tether to reality um, or mm -hmm. you're intentionally trying to cause pain for whatever reason that is. Um, yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I saw something on Instagram earlier today that something like 50 to 70% of the hate mail that people receive are trolls or like people yes. who do it on purpose. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, like, yes. They're, so they're not, they're not meaningful in that sense. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's not well thought out feedback that is lands hurtfully. It's like, I'm intending to create pain. And so, mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. this vast percentage. I mean, when you yeah. think about that, fifty to seventy percent. Yeah. Um, I actually don't know the source, so probably don't quote me on that. But it just flashed up on Instagram. Yeah. I believe it though, because I, there's so much trolling that happens these days. And then you think about um, AI and bots, right? And how all that just nastiness and disinformation is just like regurgitated and shared and shared and shared. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, to that point, you know, for those that are trolls or bots or, you know, any of that stuff, if it was a human being that composed that email and sent it, what result did you really think was going to happen other than pain and harm? Like you mentioned, you know, did you think that you were going to drive this professional, this profession out of their work? Did you think that you were going to um, make them feel so small or so I don't know, self-conscious that they wouldn't want to be on TV anymore. Like, did you, what effect were you truly, really going after other than pain? I can't imagine too much. And so, you know, that's why I think it's sad. It's maddening. And, you know, to that end, my thought is, you know, there are so many different identity groups that have to grapple with this and, you know, and, and it cuts across so many different groups, whether it's race, whether it's gender, what have you. My point was, I felt like it was pain to counteract pain. So like, you know, you troll tried to cause me pain, but let me tell you, you're full of bullshit because I've already been through pain through uterine cancer. So it's almost like, which pain is gonna overhaul the other pain? And I'm like, she shouldn't have even had to say anything about her prior pain. Agreed. Agreed. Garbage is garbage. Trash is trash. And so for me, I'm like, it was a ridiculous email. And I hope that other folks obliterated this person. Um, look, I'm even at the point of, uh, can we call IT and see if they can't find a, a IP address or something to track that person down? Um, it was just ridiculous and unnecessary. And it's a traffic reporter. Hello. This is a trap. If you tuning in for the traffic, then look at the damn traffic. Okay. Why are you, why do you even care about that? Um, and so I'm not here for the body shaming. I'm not here for the fat shaming, the pain that it causes people, um, the, the self harm sometimes that people inflict because they've been hurt in that way about their bodies. I'm not here for it. Not for a millisecond. So good on her for saying what she said. Yes.
good on her. Um, <laughs> little side note for people who are watching this, I'm like getting confused because I have this darn beeping thing happening here that I can't figure yeah, out. Yeah, what's going on going over on. there? But I think I figured it out because I time our little phase segments and I didn't turn off the sound. So the computer is beeping at me that the time is up. And I'm like, where is this beeping coming from? Because I'm not wearing my headphones this week. And so I assumed it was the microphone. So I unplugged the microphone and it stopped. Like coincidentally, I guess. And then oh, I wow. And I'm like, I don't know where this sound is coming from. So that's why on, on the visual, I'm like looking all around my desk here. So I apologize for that, but I figured it out. So anyway. That's now, too funny. I know, right? Oh my goodness. So that's too funny. We finally figured it out, y'all. So we when we thought about the format of the podcast, we wanted to make sure y'all got around about 10 minute snippets so that it's enough to digest, but not overwhelming. And so we're almost too good at the timing piece because we got stuff beeping all over the place. So all right, we found it. We found it. That's awesome. I figured it out. I figured it out. So it took me a while. It took me two episodes to figure it it's out. It's all okay. good. It's all good. So sliding into phase three, then um, we have another listener question that I wanted to bring forth because I think it's kind of interesting. So, okay. So picture an organization, the example in the listener question is a nonprofit, but I don't think it is necessarily doesn't have to be specifically a nonprofit, right? And the organization is, is small enough, doesn't have a chief diversity officer, right? But the the CEO is a white woman. And it, the CEO is a white woman who really believes in diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, or at least articulates verbally their belief, right? They have all the right language around it. And so they're looking at implementing some diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies in the organization. But through their self-proclaimed knowledge and allyship and commitment to the cause, they end up slow walking these DEI processes because they become a gatekeeper to the DEI processes because no one knows as much of, of them, right? And they're questioning or perseverating on concepts or ideas because, well, maybe that might not be as inclusive as you think, right? But ultimately it's a little bit smoke and mirror-y um, that then, um, stymies any progress on DEI. And I think that there's possibly two manifestations here. One where you just have a clueless white woman who really truly thinks that she gets it and she is totally committed to DEI, but doesn't recognize the way in which kind of white supremacy is manifesting. And so, so it's like, she's not realizing that she's shutting down the process. But I think there's also like a more sinister option where the white woman is like actually not bought into DEI and is using her positional power and proclaimed DEI skill and expertise intentionally to shut down other people's suggestions and slow roll it. So that was not um, in the email, that second piece, that was me editorializing it as possible yeah. options, but I'm really wondering what you're yeah. thinking here in terms of what might the motivations be, and more importantly, how on earth did the folks in the organization manage that or handle that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the first thing I think about um, as you're giving us this example here, so 
back in March, which you know about this, Lisa, back in March, um, I had the convening for the certificate program that I've been taking at University of Pennsylvania around um, social impact strategy. And uh, so much was mind blowing at that session. But one of the most mind blowing things that I heard was when you're trying to design a solution through social impact strategy, you have to think about, yes, what's the right thing to do, but also who are the right people to do it. And when you're telling me this story about white women gatekeepers as leaders and nonprofits and so forth, I feel like it's almost like when two people try to drive the car at the same time, it's like, yeah, maybe you need to be gassing up the car. Maybe you need to be the damn pit crew to make sure that the car has the gas and the resources, but someone else needs to be driving. And that's where I think it gets interesting when it comes to gatekeeping. Remember, gatekeeping goes both ways. You can keep the gate closed or you can open it. And when you have the power to keep it closed or open it, then what role are you playing? Are you keeping it closed more than you keeping it open? Um, And rationalizing it and weaponizing good DEI language in order to do it. So, you know, I think it brings up a bunch of questions around when, when it comes to white women leaders holding their own gender oppression, yet at the same time, uh, it gets back into the white supremacy model that we talk about all the time, Lisa, around how overanalyzing and perfectionism, even for the well-intentioned, still slows things down too much. Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time, people who cannot see through the right language and the wrong action, right? So you you can pull out all, I mean, folks even had that conversation about, what's her name, um, about Robin D'Angelo who wrote the the book on these particular topics around um white fragility and nice racism and so forth there was some question about her in particular when she talked about being an ally but yet you know some things going on around whether she actually gave money to the um nonprofit organizations and so forth that she espoused to mismatching of words and action now i don't know if any of that's true or not so forgive me if it's not true but there was some documented questioning of that well what if we question white women leaders of nonprofits to say yeah you're saying the right stuff but the doing piece is there a point that you are being over uh how can i say overly vetting overly perfectionist to the point that nothing gets done. It, Lisa, it's kind of like when we wrote our dissertation, an imperfect done dissertation is better than a perfect undone one. Like right. get out of here with that perfection piece. So yeah, I think this is interesting. I don't have a good answer, but it, it takes a, a savvy person to read through the language, not matching the action piece or the urgency piece. Yeah. But I, I, I think all of that is true. And I think, um, what do you do if you're an employee in the organization and you see all of that, but you don't have any power, right? So you are not going to call your boss on the fact that they are um, insincere, perhaps, in their commitment to DEI or so, so certain that they know the right way to go that they're blocking out other people's perspectives like I don't know how 
if the, per if the person in question doesn't have the self-awareness to understand what they're doing, mm -hmm. if, like, just, let's say that it's not the, it's not the purposeful, right? That, but they're slow rolling or slow walking this process because of perfectionism or whatever. It's not about maliciousness. But then how does an employee who has less power give that feedback? Because you've also run into to bringing up white fragility. I think you run into white fragility there, right? You have a white woman who's so into being inclusive and really, really wants to get it right um, and really thinks that they know how to do that and then receive feedback from someone who's in less a less powerful position that perhaps they're actually the problem, not the solution. Um, yeah. That is yeah. likely going to wound their ego, right? And then we kind of fall into that white fragility piece. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to advise employees who are stuck in that situation. Well, now it's it's so ironic that you're talking about power in particular because I'm I'm still slowly but surely working my way through Lily Zhang's book, DEI Deconstructed. And Lily does write about power and even uses this narrative story about talking to someone who who said that I don't feel like I have enough power to do anything in regards to, you know, whether it's a DEI or otherwise. And so Lily breaks down power into six different variations. But I think the one that that pertains to this, this is going to be interesting because I think it might be either expert power, informational power, referent power. So the person that you're talking about as far as a white woman leader would be the formal power, right? So, you know, we know pretty much what that is with titles and, you know, money and influence, so forth. Um, reward power, that person also probably has the ability to promise certain things like a promotion or whatever it might be for that type of thing. Coercive power clearly has coercive power mm -hmm. the higher you go up on the org right. chart. Right. But the person that you're talking about as far as giving them some advice, just by the mere ability to identify that this person may be slow walking and sabotaging tells me that they have some expert power. They have information to be able to yeah. see through some of that. Okay. So yeah. I think they have some expert power around DEI. And also um, they have possibly some referent power, which is the ability to build rapport um, with other people. Um, because power oftentimes, especially if you're at the top of the ladder, that formal power actually takes away from referent power because no one can relate to you. Like who else in the organization is going to be able to relate to the executive director, the CEO, yeah. whoever, yeah. whereas referent power is, hey, Shauna and Lisa are both mid-level managers, so they can at least collaborate and work together on how they're going to put the agenda together for the meeting or whatever. And so there may be some things where they influence, but they don't necessarily have to name because they have that referent power where they can collaborate with other people that are um, on a different place on the org chart than themselves. So Lily speaks to that. I'm not an expert in that area because I'm still working mm -hmm. through the book, but that may be a way to go. That's interesting. So building connections and alliances with organizational employees who are on a similar level to you who might also be noticing the same things might have that expert power and figuring out ways to perhaps indirectly nudge or um leave a breadcrumb yeah. right that the ceo might pick up 
I do, mm-hmm. you know, I think um, that's, that's useful. I think that would be useful. I know I just, I used to listen to this podcast that was called Work Appropriate. It finished um, around three or four seasons and there were some good episodes on there, but I always left the podcast feeling like the guests and the host kind of just talked around the issue and never like offered direct solutions. And so I'm trying not to do that here for the listener, right? Like what are some tangible things that you could do? But I mean, I guess it also depends on the safety of the organization because you could have a CEO who thinks that they know everything about DEI and so are like, trust the process, right? But the process isn't actually going anywhere. The, the, the culture as a whole is generally safe. And so maybe you can have those conversations, but presumably there are also cult work cultures where there isn't that safety at all. So it right. might feel really challenging, even, even with that referent power that you mentioned. I don't know what the situation is in this particular listener question because that wasn't addressed but I just this this white woman thing as a white woman you know I find that um frustrating because it's um similar to some of the commentaries we've seen online Shauna around whether or not white women should be should apply for chief diversity officer positions Mm -hmm. like whether Mm -hmm. that's their place because they do have an experience of oppression through their womanhood right but they have significant racial privilege they might have experience of oppression and privilege with other identities, mm-hmm. but there's some fairly strong feelings about whether or not white women should be applying for those positions. So then what does it mean absent one of those positions where you have a white woman taking charge of mm-hmm. the diversity, equity, and inclusion process at an organization? It feels kind of similar to me. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it definitely feels feels very similar. And at the same time, it's it's kind of a both and conundrum where do we feel comfortable with a white woman taking on this role? And at the same time, people of color, LGBT folks, other folks saying, but don't want to be the chief diversity officer either. (laughs) So it's like the, the piece of, I'm glad someone stepped up, but is this the right someone to step up? And do they know how to function in that role as someone who still carries privilege in one place? and not in another right and so you know that's where again going back to my point around you know are you the right person to do this work if uh, so when even thinking about a chief diversity officer i would completely envision a white woman doing doing the work differently from a person of color a man of color an lgbt person etc they have to do it differently because their oppression is prominent but also their privilege is prominent at the same time Right. And so how do they manage that and how do they leverage it? Do you see them leveraging that in their favor or not Um, or leveraging it in other people's favor, rather, I should say, um, or not? And so, yeah, I'm it makes me sad because when I originally thought about gatekeepers, I thought about this is the person that's like the door person. They open the door of opportunity for people. But based on, you know, what you're giving us here, oh, this is the person that's putting 15 locks down the door and they will let you know when they feel like unlocking the door. I'm like, mm, that's not quite what I envisioned originally. Now mm-hmm. you're interested in my thought on yeah. that um, and how to help them understand that um, there are always some growing edges, even as you have the right language, because it sounds like this gatekeeper um, may not have the cultural humility that they possibly even espouse and how to name that in real time. 
yeah, I think that's probably an accurate assessment based on what the, the listener emailed um, mm -hmm. because there's that concern around the fragility piece, right? And I think if yeah. you have cultural humility, you're less likely to be susceptible to critiques and that fragility is less likely to rear its head. I mean, yeah, yeah. Gonna be absent, probably because we all for people who want to do the right, right thing and then told they're not doing the right thing. That always stings just a little, right? <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Of course. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And being open to being open to that critique constantly. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't even want to say that. Let me take that back. Don't be open to the critique, seek out the critique. Mm. Because there's some privilege in let me sit back as a, a white woman or a privileged person and come to me if you have anything because it takes a level of yeah. to come to that person so if you're in that role seek out the feedback so that people start to feel more comfortable providing that information to you because you have to exercise the privilege in a different way so mm -hmm. if, if they have the level of cultural humility they need they will actively seek out uh, you know, what their growing edges are, and then maybe this won't be as much of a problem. Um, but yeah, that's a tough one. I don't have a good answer for you. All right. Well, I tried though. Listener, I tried. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully this was helpful. Um, us kind of like talking out loud about and thinking about how you want to handle, if you want to continue to handle this in your frustration, but great question. Um, yeah. We would love to hear from everyone who listens to the pod. If you have similar questions or things that have stumped you or you'd love our perspective on like, like this weekend, last week, we don't always have a, the perfect answer, but mm -hmm. we certainly will be in the mix with you. Um, yeah. So I think that's a wrap for this week. And uh, what are you thinking, Shauna? Um, how can folks get a hold of us? Yes, please do. Well, as you can see, we've had a couple of uh, listener questions, listener letters, listener emails, messages. Um, so please, we encourage you to do that. But you can, of course, we want you to find us on YouTube, unfazed, unedited, brackets around the un and unfazed. Go find us there and follow us, subscribe. Uh, we're on Instagram, of course, LinkedIn. We're there as well. Please find us there. And you can always email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com. And, you know, our website is always there. Please don't forget, Lisa and I worked really hard on 115 episodes before uh, we changed the format. So you can go back and listen to some of those in the archive at the website, unfazedpodcast.com. You can find us there, new and old shows. And share, share, please share. Use this as your professional development, some of your training, even a uh, what I call a spark in dialogue, a spark to a conversation that you may want to have at work or elsewhere. Uh, but share it with your friends, coworkers, or others in this phase of your life. So until next week, we'll see you soon. See ya.